Welcome to another episode of Ask a Theologian, the Catholic University of America Theology and Religious Studies podcast, in which we interview professors from our fantastic and talented staff. My name is Will Dethridge. I am a master's student in historical and systematic theology, and joining me here today is Dr. Brad Gregory. He is a scholar of Old Testament studies and has written quite a few fantastic commentaries that we'll link to in the description. It's great to have you, sir. Great. Thanks for having me, Will. So I'd like to start off with a question from one of our students here at Catholic U, Arielle Hobbs. She's a theology student, and she would like to know about how your intellectual journey has impacted you as a Catholic. You know, if you could just talk about your story about how theology as a school of thought and, you know, your uh, journey as a professor has impacted your faith, that'd be, that'd be great. Sure. Yeah. I think like many people, I went into theology because I had questions and I wanted to find answers to them. Um, what I came to realize over the course of my intellectual journey was that um, while that is good in a sense, there, there were also a couple of problems with that. Um, so one of them is that what I very quickly learned was that with every answer came more questions. And what I found was is that in my intellectual pursuits of theology in general and biblical studies in particular, um, what I needed were better questions. Um, I, I had some questions I wanted to find out information about, but those frequently opened up into these larger questions that are not easily answered. They, you can't just go like look them up in a reference work somewhere. Um, and in many cases, those questions take you know, years or even a lifetime to work out. Um, along the way, I also discovered that uh, the kind of me-centered approach, I wanna get knowledge and have it, and then I can use it and so forth, uh, is, is not the best way to go about it for a couple of reasons. One, one is that I think in our American context, we tend to approach our faith, our theology, all of these things in a very individualistic manner. But I came to see the value and, and really even the necessity of interpreting within community, um, not just to check your own sort of interpretations and your own ideas and so forth, but because uh, scripture was designed to be a work that's worked out in community, um, not just me over here kind of learning my thing. Um, and part of that, I think, is, is that I, I think I've come to realize that that when I when I try to learn, I, I need to be asking why I'm learning those things. Why am I interested in those things? What are the what are the things that motivate me to do that? If it's because I want to be able to like control things, I want to you know be able to dictate to God, you're supposed to act this way or, or so forth. Um, then then there's a real kind of underside to that. But um, I think one of the most kind of profound insights I had on my intellectual journey that has shaped who I am as a scholar, who I am as a teacher, and so forth, was this realization, a number of theologians ha have brought this out, but if, if the center of Christian theology is the crucifixion and resurrection, um, then the way that we go about doing theology <clears throat> or studying scripture or studying these great theologians, <clears throat> excuse me, um, should should use a form, should, should approach the discipline in a way that matches its content. Mm. And so what I mean by that is if at the center of the Christian faith is this self-sacrificial 
giving love, concern for others uh, in the crucifixion, then the very way that we do theology should, should have that same character to it, that it should be self-sacrificial, that it should be at the service of the church and the world, um, and so forth. And so I've been, I've been struck over the years to examine my own motivations. Um, why do I ask the questions I ask? What, what am I seeking to learn? What am, what am I going to do with that knowledge? Um, and, and placing the cross radically at the center of all of that has been something I've kind of come back to over and over again. And precisely there is where faith and, and intellectual pursuits, I think, begin to overlap quite a bit. No, that's fantastic. I, you know, I really appreciate a lot of the commentary there because, uh, you know, from a student's perspective, I certainly know that uh, my peers and I can often struggle with that intersection and, you know, precisely how you uh, mentioned that we're not here to dictate how God is supposed to be. We're not supposed to overly mechanize or systematize. This is exactly how he behaves. And I'm sure as an Old Testament scholar, oh, you run into that quite a bit as far as the mysteriousness of how God works throughout history. So I certainly appreciate that insight um, as well as, you know, it really sounds like your intellectual pursuits grounded in that classical definition of theology, faith-seeking understanding uh, like that. Um, and, you know, I, I was wondering if as a follow-up, if, if you could, you, you've told us a bit about your, how you structure uh, your intellectual life around uh, theology, if, if you could also just tell us about your personal journey or story towards becoming a uh, professor of theology, that would be much appreciated because uh, certainly there are many people who are interested in uh, getting into that field and it's always valuable to hear stories of uh, how you guys uh, accomplished that. Yeah, so I had a little bit of an unusual uh, path in the theology. I um, when I was in high school, I, I was primarily interested in the math and science kind of STEM realm. And so I did my undergraduate at Georgia Tech uh, in chemistry, biochemistry, worked for a couple of years in, in a research lab um, uh, near Atlanta. What I found, though, is uh, by the end of my undergraduate career and then in the couple of years I worked as a chemist, um, I was devoting my spare time. Uh, to the studying of biblical studies, theology, it just uh, fascinated me. Um, at the lab where I worked, I would often have to set up a reaction and then it would have like a four or five hour cook time. And our lab director did not mind if, as long as you were sitting at your hood, uh, if you read something else, because all you have to do is make sure that, you know, the temperature and pressure stay in a certain kind of range and that kind of thing. And so I just, uh, I spent those years just, uh, I would do either Greek flashcards or uh, read, you know, a book I was interested in. Um, over those few years, I came to realize both that I did not want to do chemistry full time um, for 40 years. Uh, it was it was fine, but I didn't feel a real sense of fulfillment or calling to it. Uh, and I had to have, I started to have more of the sense that um, this stuff that I'm I'm gravitating towards, maybe this is what I should devote myself to full time. Fortunately, I had a very understanding wife who uh, knew uh, going into the marriage that I was already set up, sort of moving in that direction. So then we uprooted and uh, I went back to school to do a degree in uh, theology and then eventually um, 
found myself drawn to the Old Testament because of its its earthiness, its diversity. I mean, the story of Israel is just kind of an amazing uh, story. And so I, uh, I became interested in, in that and then did my doctoral work at Notre Dame. Um, and, uh, and over the course of that, I sort of gravitated from, um, <clears throat> from just biblical studies to trying to see that as part of a, a larger uh, organic development of, of tradition stretching back to the beginning with God's people all the way up to the present day. And so that got me interested not just in the Old Testament, but in how it's been interpreted through history. So I'm very interested in the history of reception and interpretation and the role it plays in modern theological discussions. And so I've kind of nurtured that interest uh, along the way. And Notre Dame was a great place to do that because biblical studies is not part of a Near Eastern program. Like at CUA, it's kind of embedded within a larger theology and religious studies context, which makes for very fruitful um, interdisciplinary kind Mm -hmm. of questions. Yeah, I've always appreciated that about Catholic U. And, you know, I, I suppose for any uh, STEM majors uh, listening in on this podcast, yeah, there's hope for you, too, in terms of uh, a theological career, you know. Um, but, yeah, yeah, no, I, I love how, uh, you know, you enjoy situating uh, biblical scholarship in that broader context of religious studies. It's always something that I, I think uh, more Catholic schools can do a better job of emulating it. And I'm really appreciative of how Catholic U has uh, approached that intersection of theology and religious studies like that. So, you know, you mentioned that you are very drawn to and inspired by the Old Testament tradition. And one of our, um, actually, uh, one of our non-CUA students uh, from Benedictine, his name is John Tuttle, uh, you know, he, he read up a bit of your work, and his question is, what have been some of your favorite passages or sections of the Bible to study? Obviously, I'm sure there's some that you specialize in, but then what are some of your personal favorites as well? Yeah, so in terms of my academic research, most of my interests have revolved around the wisdom literature, and mm. I've published the most on the wisdom of Sirah or Sirach. Um, I've been very interested in how as uh, contexts change, you know, from like the Persian period to the Greek period to the Roman period and so forth, how does that affect how people think about uh, moral formation, theological formulations, those kinds of things. And so I've been very interested in tracing how those kind of develop, you know, like from Proverbs into Benzir and the wisdom of Solomon and so forth. Um, and that, that's an ongoing interest for me. Uh, I would say uh, in terms of teaching, so studying scripture alongside of students in a classroom, um, probably from the Old Testament, the, the book I love to teach the most is Genesis, particularly the, the early chapters. Um, they're just uh, both in terms of, of literary work that produces some profound theology, but also in terms of their history of reception. Stories like Cain and Abel or the Abraham story. Uh, have just never failed to to produce amazement um, for me in teaching those with students. On the New Testament side, I, I'm particularly drawn to 2 Corinthians. Um, and the reason I think for that is, is that that is maybe, in terms of all of Paul's letters, that is maybe the, the letter at w- in which you can see clear as kind of the visceral 
attempt of Paul to live out the cross and how he deals with just an incredibly messy church situation. Um, mm. I mean, it's kind of amazing to me, right? You have apostles striding the earth and the church is a mess. Um, and, uh, and Corinth is a great example of that. But what I find fascinating is that Paul doesn't like get sucked into the like power and status and all the things that we tend to want to do to make ourselves important. And instead, he just thinks deeply about how the cross should structure what it means to be an apostle, what it means to be part of the church and so forth. And I love kind of opening that up um, to students. And then I would say just on a personal level, at least lately, I've been very drawn to the Psalms of Ascents. So these are uh, 15 Psalms near the end of the book of Psalms, uh, 120 through 134, that were probably used as part of the pilgrimage festivals. Um, and one interpreter from centuries ago said that kind of the entire spiritual life can be encapsulated in the Psalms of Ascents. Um, these people who are making a journey towards the, the one place on earth where God can be encountered in a way that he can't be encountered anywhere else. Um, and both in terms of the, the theology of the Psalms of Ascents, but also in the role they've played um, in the history of interpretation. I mean, Augustine's uh, commentaries on the Psalms of Ascents are just magnificent, uh, beautiful works. And uh, so the, those, have been, uh, those have been passages that I've been drawn to quite a bit lately. Great. In, in a similar vein, there's a follow-up question. So, you know, we've talked about some of your favorite passages and sections of the Bible, and it's great to hear that there's such a variety. You know, like you said, there's some in wisdom literature, there's, you know, some in the uh, uh, Pentateuch, uh, some from Paul. Who are some particular characters in the Bible uh, who you particularly admire especially given their roles as a faithful servants of God. I assume you mean in addition to Jesus. Well, um, yeah, yeah. Pretty important. <laughs> <one>. <laughs> um, yeah. That I mean, obviously, <laughs> yeah. As I just said, uh, I mean, I have a lot of admiration for Paul. Mm -hmm. um, the way that he was able to live out a vocation in light of the cross at great cost to himself. Um and was willing to undergo a tremendous amount of suffering uh, because he wanted to bring the gospel to, to others um, strikes me as admirable. I, I think from the Old Testament, um, I, I have a great affinity for uh, prophets who were sort of on the margins, but mm. found the courage to speak out for justice among God's people. So Amos and Micah are some of my favorites that I'm drawn to. Um, but one of the interesting things I think, uh, Will, about Scripture is uh, that it doesn't often hold up characters as, you know, these lionized, you know, flawless human beings. Right. Um, many of them are complex characters. They have clay feet. And so I find myself often drawn to, to characters, both because they have things that I admire or would be worthy of emulation, but also because even in their mistakes, they teach me something about life and faith. And I'll just give you a few examples. Hmm. For, for a long time, I've, I've felt a particular draw towards the character of Leah in the book of Genesis. I mean, here is somebody who always lived in the shadow of her younger sister, um, even ended up married to Jacob, 
only because he was tricked into thinking she was her younger sister. And then she ends <laughs> up in this marriage along with her younger sister. And I mean, just what a terrible road yeah. that she had to travel. Um, but there are two things about Leah that I find great comfort in. One is that, um, you know, when Rachel dies, she's buried alongside the road. They're on their way somewhere. But when Leah dies many years later, she's buried in the cave of Machpelah alongside the other matriarchs. So Sarah and Rebecca and the patriarchs. And there's something just very, uh, very moving to me about the fact that she was so overlooked and so disregarded for so much of her life. And yet she ends up in the cave of the patriarchs Mm. um and then the second part of that which there's no way leah could have known as her story is unfolding but two of her sons were levi and judah so as as disrespected and pushed to the side as she was she ended up being the matriarch of the kings and priests of israel um and to me that just gives great hope i mean she went to her grave never knowing any of that right but Mm. um but God has a way of kind of redeeming those things. Uh, and, and then I would say similar in, in that respect, you know, the figures of Moses and Job strike me because, um, for example, Moses lives his entire life outside of the promised land, yeah. never gets to enter the promised land, has to die after he sees it. Um, uh, but, you know, without being able to cross over and enter it and, and how tragic and disappointing that must have been for him. Um, And yet, uh, at the end of Deuteronomy, it reminds us that, you know, he didn't get to experience the promised land, but he did get to encounter God, right, in a way that nobody else had. And maybe that's really the point of everything, not just what God has given, but God himself. And Job is a similar kind of character, you know, I mean, he goes through a different kind of suffering. And it's, uh, I mean, it's not to be missed that at the end of the book, he never gets an explanation for why he had to suffer. He never finds out, like, what happened. But what he does get is an encounter with God in the whirlwind. Um, and th- that's a similarity between, between Job and, and Moses that I find to be comforting because so much mm-hmm. of life is incomprehensible and you're never yeah. going to get an answer for it. Yeah. You know, um, even though we might cry out for that, but probably what we really want is not more information about what we're going through, but we need a kind of ministry of presence. Um, mm. And so those are some figures that I find myself drawn to. Uh, because I find my life making more sense in light of their stories. Yeah, that's wonderful that you choose uh, figures of such great uh, humility who, you know, in in many cases didn't really end up getting the answers they wanted or, uh, you know, getting into that promised land that they sought out like that. Um, You know, so it's... No, it, it, it's remarkable how much bearing some of these great figures can have on our lives. And, you know, especially for young theologians, it really is difficult to avoid boxing God into something that we either want him to be or, uh, you know, seek that knowledge of God for a greater level of comfort when at the end of the day, you're right, it is more of a ministry of presence that's going to fill us and there's this comfortable tension um, we have to be at where uh, we understand that you know we long for God and he longs for us but we're never going to achieve that perfect knowledge or perfect state of uh, mind uh, 
until you know hopefully after, after death like that um yeah i mean I, in a way that kind of cycles back to the first question you asked which is what i've come to to realize is that you know the best questions uh, often don't have easy answers or answers that you may ever find out you know this side of death um, but that can be okay because wrestling with the questions is, is kind of part of the journey itself you know? right well and you know on that note you know one of the so in the realm of a broader theology you know especially uh, modern theology there are a few questions that have come up recently that provoke quite a bit of thought for uh, a lot of not just Catholics, but Christians across the entire spectrum uh, regarding the authors of scripture. And that's something that certainly a lot of young Catholics I have come across uh, wrestle with in their own different ways. And, you know, just, just from your perspective, you know, coming from the Old Testament background, uh, if you could speak to how much you think it matters regarding the human author's of scripture, that would be great. That's a question submitted by uh, Sam Agra from St. Louis University, a uh, good uh, Jesuit college uh, down south. So, yeah, um, yeah, I think it. I think it matters in, in some ways, and in some ways it doesn't. Um, so let me kind of take those in turn. Uh, I think it matters because the church has has strongly held that the Bible is not a book that just dropped out of heaven. Right. Nor were uh, the human authors simply like, you know, secretaries taking down dictation, um, that they were they were real authors in every sense that we mean when we say that somebody authored a book. And so you read the various works in Scripture, and it's obvious that, you know, different personalities come through their idiosyncrasies, their ways of expressing mm -hmm. things, their their own kind of cultural moment. And the church has been very emphatic that um, in that respect, we have to emphasize that these works are both human works and the word of God. And just as uh, Dave Arabum, the, the constitutional divine revelation from Vatican II, uh, draws a nice analogy with Christ, that Christ is both fully God and fully man. It's not a trade-off where the more divine mm. he is, the less human, or the more human, the less divine. And in a similar way, uh, scripture is a fully human work um, and everything that comes with that. Um, and that does not at all detract or stand in tension with its ability also to be the word of God. Um, and that's why Dave Verbum says that, you know, the first indispensable step to interpretation is understanding like the time, the context, the language, the manner of expression, the genre, all of those things that go into the production of a human work, right? Hmm. Um, and, and so we can't bypass that. We can't just kind of like be this kind of reader response, it means whatever I want it to mean kind of thing. Right. We have to take utterly seriously the human authorship of scripture. And in that sense, finding out who, you know, wrote various portions of scripture is actually crucial to its interpretation. But where I think it doesn't quite matter as much, Will, is um, that it has to be one human and not another. Right. Um, or as uh, uh, there's a Jewish scholar I, I really admire, John Levinson, and um, he once said, not in exactly these words, but he said, you know, it's not the case that God only inspires famous people. Hmm. Right. Um, yeah. So if you think that like if it's not a famous person like Moses or David or 
uh, Paul or whoever, then somehow it can't also be God's word. Uh, I would want to push back on that. Um, and yeah. in fact, there, for example, in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, mm. we don't know who wrote that, right? Yeah. People have guessed Paul, people have guessed Barnabas, but we don't know. And at some level, we have to be okay with the fact that we, yeah. in all likelihood, are never going to know who wrote Hebrews. Mm-hmm. Um, there are portions of the Old Testament that uh, we don't know who wrote them or edited them or added to right. them in some cases. Yeah. That um, I mean, there's a real sense in which you say, like, well, who wrote this? And you'd have to say Israel did, right? I mean, mm-hmm. God working through Israel yeah. over a long period of time brought about a diverse and, uh, and, and rich collection of writings that many people had a hand in. Yeah. And I think... I think if we can get to the point where we're okay with that, I think there's something theologically profound there, right? That's right. Um, yeah. Because what it means is that God works with the ordinary. God yes. works with the unremarkable. Um, and to go again back to my kind of first point, I mean, isn't that really what the cross and the first disciples were all about? That it's not the flashy emperor. It's not the high philosopher. It's not the famous dignitary. Uh, that God says, well, I'm just going to work with these people because they're worthy, that God works with all manner of people. Mm -hmm. Um, And even scripture is brought about some through famous people, right? Um, So, I mean, Paul is famous and he wrote many letters, uh, but there are plenty of other portions of scripture that uh, were written by people that have kind of disappeared in terms of their identity from history. What we have is what they wrote for us. Yeah. What we have is how the community of God's people recognized it to be the, the, the word of God. And I think leaning into that is actually a crucial, crucial part of letting God be God, that, mm. that God can bring about scripture in ways that seem kind of counterintuitive to us. Cause we think like, Oh, it should just be like, the famous people. It should be Moses and David and Paul and, and some of these other people. Um, but I think there's a real wisdom in that Israel and the church have long recognized uh, that God can use anybody. Yeah. Um, so. No, that, that, that's beautiful too. And I think it illustrates your point about the church's entire tradition uh, you know, from its origins in ancient Israel has always been far more communal than it has been based around certain personalities, uh, you know, like that. I mean, obviously, you know, Christ is the ultimate personality there, but as far as how things are passed down and transcribed and how the tradition is kept alive, it is in a communal context like that. And what I really appreciate about your approach is that, you know, it, it more or less Christianizes a lot of uh, historical, um, historical critical methods that have had their fair share of controversy uh, in recent church history. And, you know, I, I suppose that would take me to a, a follow-up question that is, you know, so a lot of Catholics are well aware that, you know, towards, I'd say like 1800s, early 1900s or so, there were a lot of scholars who would take a lot of these methods and say, all right, see, I can disprove that this prophet or that person ever existed. It means that that part of the Bible, we can just throw it out or ignore it or uh, debunk this whole Judeo-Christian tradition altogether. Um, and, you know, th- that that was a portion of uh, uh, 
I don't even want to call it biblical scholarship as much because it seemed like some people had some agendas uh, when they came in with that mentality. Um, and I know that there are a lot of Catholics out there who are weary of historical critical methods when approaching scripture like that. Um, what advice would you give to people who are hesitant to you know, engage in these more modern approaches of biblical interpretation, uh, the analysis of authorship, textual analysis, etc. I mean, you've already spoken, you know, of a fantastic Catholic uh, and authentically Christian method of interpreting these texts within that framework. But what advice would you give people specifically who are a little bit scared of, you know, letting go of this mentality that it must have been written by that person or else it doesn't matter as much. Yeah, I guess the first thing I would do is is point them to a document that the Pontifical Biblical Commission put out in 1993 called The Interpretation of the Bible in the Church. Mm. And the preface of that was written by, at the time, uh, Joseph Ratzinger, came Pope Benedict XVI. Um, and that document does a wonderful job, both of informing you how these different methodologies work in, in a concise and, and accessible way, um, and it's a long document. I think it's like 50 pages, but it, I mean, it's well worth reading. And I, I think what I appreciate most about that document, and um, Ratzinger makes this point in the preface as well, is that, you know, a method is just a method. It kind of depends mm -hmm. on why you're using it. Yeah. Um, and particularly uh, in the wake of the Enlightenment, the method of historical analysis, which was not limited to biblical studies, people in other disciplines right. were using these kinds of tools and these kinds of insights, but um, there was kind of an assumption that took hold, which was that um, what we need to do is get behind or around the Bible to these like famous personalities um, yeah. or to these like universal ideas. Uh, and then once you do that, you don't really need the Bible. Um, mm. But what began to happen was you'd have people like write the biography of the prophet Isaiah, right? And the assumption there is that what matters is that man, Isaiah, not right. the book that that bears his name, um, and I think that's a real mistake because mm. what is what is scripture? Uh, the, the books that we have, right? They're those books, not uh, some event or uh, person behind the book that we're just trying to get to. Now, those things matter. I mean, we talked about how like setting in its yeah. context matters and so forth. But um, I guess what I would say is that uh, I mean, one great indication that that the personality himself uh, is not uh, all that's required, you know, for revelation. It's just the fact that we have, we know of letters Paul, the Apostle Paul wrote that never made it in the Bible. I mean, he wrote at least right. four letters to Corinth. We have yeah. two of them in the Bible. So just because Paul wrote something doesn't make it scripture. And just because mm -hmm. something wasn't maybe by Paul doesn't mean that it's not scripture. Um, and so I would say in terms of a historical critical method, um, the, ultimately the goal of the historical critical method is to understand how we got the text that we have. Right. But whether that's revelatory uh, is, is not endemic to the method itself. Mm. Um, so I remember when I was a master's student and I started encountering some of these methods and some of the conclusions of biblical scholarship. And they were unsettling to me because I grew up with a very, like Moses had to write the whole Pentateuch. Isaiah had to right. write the whole book of Isaiah because I thought, well, if they didn't, then something's wrong here. Um, 
but I remember just being struck in the midst of this um, to go back to the the very first question you asked me with a sense that I I needed to let God determine how scripture came about, even right. if it made me uncomfortable, even if uh, I wasn't sure, you know, that that was the best way, or even if it undercut some of my assumptions. And well, that was a tremendously liberating moment for me because mm-hmm. I, I just said to myself, um, I'm, going to, I'm going to pursue uh, a true understanding as best I can of these documents. And as a matter of faith, I'm going to be okay with however it is that God brought these about. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not going to predetermine or dictate that it has to come about this way or God can't uh, God can't be behind it, that it yeah. can't be revelatory, that yeah. ultimately, um, and my life over the, you know, the decades that I've lived has borne out that God often works in surprising ways. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my favorite verses is from Tobit, and it's in the prayer um, that comes about in the middle of the book, but uh, there's a line in there where he says, things have not turned out as we thought, but you have dealt with us according to your great mercy. And I would say, uh, have that spirit of prayer as you encounter something like biblical scholarship. It may not turn out like you thought, but trust that God will be faithful in the midst of that. And I think that that is both in Vatican II and in the Pontifical Biblical Commission's documents and in some of the insightful um, statements about biblical interpretation you've seen from the past few popes. I think that what you see is a spirit in the church that we don't have to fear the truth. Um, that that the church is big enough, the church is robust enough to handle that. It has the intellectual apparatus to be able to handle uh, wherever that may take us. And I think a great example of that is, um, and you can look around at any number of Catholic uh, faculties uh, of people who are great scholars and. Um, uh, and, and yet are, are, uh, are convinced, right, uh, of, of the church's tradition and, and the yeah. way that the church has handled scripture. So I don't think it's something we have to be afraid of. I think that it's, it's actually a call for us to have the humility to say, um, let's not predetermine what God must have done or couldn't have done and so forth. Yeah, uh, yeah I, I think there's a, a tragic irony uh, when we fall into that mentality that, well, you know, it must have been done like this because, uh, you know, I, I talked to a lot of uh, uh, Catholics who, you know, are, are very traditional in their faith and, you know, when it comes to uh, doctrine and whatnot, but a lot of people still fall into that trap of, you know, thinking in that early enlightenment mentality of, yeah, we have to uncover the personality or in, unless it's meaningless. What we fail to realize is that's a a fairly modern understanding of how uh, scripture and tradition are supposed to form and uh, interact like that. So, you know, I, I definitely appreciate that perspective, uh, especially from Tobit, that you know, might not be exactly uh, how we thought of it to begin with, but, you know, God's mercy is what matters most. So uh, definitely appreciate that because, you know, in my own personal experience, uh, I can imagine, I can remember how unsettling it was, you know, 
uh, when I leapt into biblical studies and started hearing you know, like, well, you know, didn't exactly, it might've not exactly happened like this. And uh, yeah, it is, but it challenges us uh, to grow and just appreciate the uh, infinite magnitude of uh, God's mystery and uh, how he can surpass our understanding, but still wants us to love and uh, know him like that. So it, it's been wonderful to have you today. Thank you so much for all, all of your time. And, you know, we'll uh, link your biography and a bibliography of all the great works you've written and uh, contributed to in the description. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, sir. Thanks so much for having me, Will.